author and speaker Max Licato tells the true story of the day after which life was never the same for Chippy the parakeet. The problem started for Chippy the day his owner decided a quicker way to clean Chippy's cage would be using the vacuum cleaner. Now, it was quicker. It was. But when she put the hose and attachment in the cage, Chippy made an unexpected movement. The, the owner bought the head fake and boom, there went Chippy. The panicked owner tore into that vacuum cleaner, and there he was, in the dust bag, stunned but alive, also filthy, dust caked in his little eyes and his little nostril holes. So she grabbed Chippy and ran to the bathroom, turned the water on. Of course, it was cold, ran him under the water to clean him off. Then poor little Chippy was shivering, presumably, I think, from trauma, but she thought it was from cold, so she got her hair dryer out and blasted the poor little guy with that for a while. A few days later, she was asked about Chippy's condition, and according to Lakato, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. <laughs> he just sort of sits and stares. Last week, we read the story together uh, in the book of 1 Kings of miraculous provision. Difficult obedience accompanied by miraculous provision. A couple different people were asked to do difficult things. God asked the prophet Elijah, whom we're following around for the next few months, asked Elijah to leave and go out and take no supplies, go out in the wilderness and depend on me to feed you using crows as the DoorDash service. And Elijah did that and he was provided for. Then God asked Elijah to leave there and leave Israel altogether, go up north to the land of the Sidonians or the Phoenicians and be provided for by a, a penniless, destitute widow. And Elijah did that. Then God, through Elijah, asked this penniless, destitute widow to feed him, care for him. And she was understandably hesitant because she said, this, there's, a, there's a massive famine, a food shortage. And she explained, I have enough food left for one meal for me and my young son. We're going to eat it and then we're going to die. And, and Elijah said, give me the first portion and God will provide for you. And where we ended off, the last verse we read last week, we read that every time this widow went to her pantry, after using all she had to be obedient to God, every time she opened that cupboard, there was a little more flour and a little more oil. And in that way, God gave them this day their daily bread, day after day after day. Such a high point. But today is the day that widow gets sort of sucked up by the vacuum. Today is the day she couldn't see coming. 
And so as we continue on in, in, in their story, we're going to see how that widow and Elijah respond to a day that makes the earth shake for them. But more than this is a story about those two characters. This is a story about God. As all stories ultimately are. Because God is, is doing more than just making life tough for this widow and providing for this widow. At the beginning of chapter 17, God, through his guy Elijah, announced a drought. It hasn't rained where we pick up today, presumably for years already. No rain, no dew. Because the king of Israel, Ahab, and his wife Jezebel are driving the people of Israel away from the worship of Israel's God, the one true God, and toward the worship of a false god known as Baal, or sometimes pronounced Baal. He was thought to be the god of rain. And so to prove that God is the only God there is, the God of rain and everything else, God announced. No rain, no dew for years. Then God ordered Elijah to go to where that widow lived because that was Baal's territory. In the ancient way of thinking, the God of Israel could be in charge in, in that territory, but the God of the Phoenicians was in charge up here. So God wanted to play a road game. He sent Elijah to Baal's land to show that the God was God there too. That the borders of nations made no difference to God. He's the God everywhere. But today, God's going to cross even another kind of border. The border between life and death. Can God operate behind the iron curtain of death? That's what today's passage is about. We're going to read it. It's in the book of First, First Kings in chapter 17. And beginning in verse 17, the New American Standard Bible reads this way. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was severe so that there was no breath left in him. Just to be clear, this is a euphemism for death. It's a, it's a softened way of saying this little boy died. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin, to bring my iniquity to remembrance, and to put my son to death. He said to her, give me your son. And then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed, on Elijah's own bed, that is. Verse 20, Elijah called to the Lord and said, Oh, Yahweh, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? And Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, Oh, Yahweh, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he, he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. 
Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. That's our passage today. We can organize that story this way. This whole story revolves around a big problem that happens, and then everything else is the responses of the various characters to that problem. So the problem, very obviously, shows up in verse 17. This, verse 17 is such a contrast to what came right before it in the story. We separated it by a week, but it's only one verse apart. In verse 16, it's this elation, this celebration, this miraculous provision. Every time she goes to the cupboard, there's enough flour, there's enough oil. Day after day after day, she had been planning to starve to death with her son. But here they are, saved every day by God. Then verse 17 happens. And after some unknown passage of time, her son, whom God had saved, got sick and died anyway. This is such an example of the rug being pulled out from under someone when things were going so well. We can tell both the widow and Elijah, they know this is God's doing. And I don't think they're wrong. It can feel like God's being pretty mean. Do you wish God was kinder here? That's the problem. This widow, who has already lost everything, she doesn't have a husband. She's lost all of her money. She has no ability to even care for herself. The only thing she had left, her son, is now gone. The first response we see to that problem comes, understandably, from the boy's mom. And inside of her reaction, we see two very common responses to tragedy, to intense pain. The first one is she looks for someone to blame. And she lands on Elijah. She asks Elijah why he came to Zarephath, her hometown, in the first place. She insinuates, if you hadn't been here, I wouldn't be going through this. Now, is she forgetting something? Had Elijah not shown up when he did, she and her son would have died of starvation. Right? And I don't know about you, but I would, you know, I would take a, I would take a quick one over a slow one, right? But you know what? I'm not hard on the widow's responses here. This is so, it's so normal. You know what pain does to us? Pain makes us focus on the pain and see nothing else but the pain. It's what it does. She, it makes us forget what we have to be grateful for because we can't see anything except what hurts. It's so normal. It's also normal then to try to find, we want someone to be responsible. 
We want to blame someone that I feel the way I feel. That's what she does. Now, her second response is almost as common as trying to blame someone else. The second response is she blames herself. She says, ah, I bet I know why this is happening. It's because of my sin. God is punishing me for all I've done, or the gods, or karma, or whatever. It's a very normal, common response. It's also unbiblical. It's wrong. Now, it's not that sin does not have consequences because it absolutely does. It's not even that we, we can't sometimes find ourselves in a situation that's extremely painful and it is caused by our sin. That happens all the time. But usually there's a more like one-to-one correspondence. You can draw a line between my sin and the mess I am now in, right? If I, if I treat my wife sinfully, terribly, and then I wind up, all of a sudden in a miserable marriage or divorced, well, I can draw a line from a point A to point B, right? If I make the habit of getting drunk and then driving a vehicle and suddenly I'm sitting in a jail cell, I can draw a line between my sin and the consequences, right? If I spend my life cheering for the Broncos and now I'm sad, I mean, you, you can draw a line. Sorry. That was for you, Kale. Uh, but listen there are other times when life on a broken planet populated by broken sinful people when life just sorts of sort of happens And it's those times where those thoughts of, I bet I had this coming. I'll bet the reason this happened is because of what I did and God has had it. Listen, that's not the way this works. What you're dealing with there is what I like to call the residual impacts of the fall. Which just means this place is broken. It doesn't work the way it would if if it was perfect. And one thing that makes suffering so terrible is because it's so unequal. And I'm dealing with this and someone else doesn't have to. I have to live like this and they get to live like that. That's just because the world is broken. Listen to me. God is not in the business of punishing people's sin as it happens on their own heads. That's not the way he works. If it is the way he works, look around. He's doing a terrible job. And I know you can find stories in the Bible where that actually does happen. Usually, when God is dealing with someone like Abraham or Isaac, or Jacob, or the nation that came from them, Israel, and he had specific promises to keep concerning those people. Okay, as you read those promises, there's, if you read those passages, there's something I want you to remember. You are not Abraham. 
You're not Isaac. You're not Jacob. You're not Israel. Or when God starts to establish the church and it's this brand new thing and God has lessons to to teach about this very specific period of time and and there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira and they lie in church about how much they give and God strikes them dead. You're not Ananias and Sapphira either. Okay, in general, God is going to punish all sin either on the cross or in hell. That's what those two places are for. That's where your sin will be punished, either there or in hell. That's why those places exist. That's where God's full justice is handed out. And if God is punishing you because of something you did, then his justice was not complete there or it will not be complete in hell. And that would make him unjust. God corrects, God disciplines, but God has no need to punish because he's patient. He operates outside of time anyway. The bad thing you're walking through is not because of anything you've done. But it's normal to feel that way. Jesus' disciples, one time there was a a man born blind. John chapter 9, they ask him this question. Hey, rabbi, teacher, whose fault is it that this kid, that this guy's blind? Who sinned? Who's being punished? This man or his parents that that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, neither. That's not the way it works. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. They're not being punished. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And there's a million different ways how the works of God can be displayed in a broken world during the pain that happens because the world is broken. That's the first response, the widow's response. She wants to find someone else to blame. Maybe it's Elijah and God. And if not, it's probably me. The next response, verses 19 through 21, we read how Elijah responds to the widow and and to the situation. The first thing I want you to notice about Elijah's response is how Elijah does not respond to what the widow has said. Put yourself in Elijah's shoes for a minute. She just blamed Elijah for the death of her son, which obviously he did not cause. In fact, he's done the opposite. If you were Elijah, how would you have wanted to respond to this woman that basically says, if you hadn't shown up, I wouldn't feel like this. He doesn't give her any of that. He doesn't go all, how dare you? I mean, if it weren't for me, You and your son would have starved to death a long time ago. How dare you accuse me? Like, there's none of that from Elijah. Elijah simply asks this woman, hand me, give me your son. 
He is on her level at the source of her hurt and wants to carry that with her. Hand me your son. He then takes that child up to Elijah's own room. The upper room is where he is staying. Puts this little lad in his own bed, Elijah's own bed, and then begins to talk to the Lord on her behalf. Now be honest. Look with me in verse 20 here. What do you think of how Elijah, what he says to God at first? He says, oh, oh Lord, and this is, he uses God's personal name, oh Yahweh, my God, are you bringing disaster on this widow that I'm staying with by killing her son? Does that seem accusatory on Elijah's part? I don't think it is. I think more than shaking his fist at God and accusing him of wrongdoing, I think this is more him taking this widow's heart and holding it up to the Lord. More than accusing God of doing something wrong, I think this is Romans 12, 15 in action. Paul told us in Romans, he commanded us, we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're supposed to weep with those who weep. Elijah, very wisely, that's what he's doing here, mainly. Elijah, very wisely, does not choose this moment to correct the widow. The widow has just responded in some very unbiblical ways. Her son has died, and she blames God, she blames Elijah, she blames herself and her own sin, and Elijah does not choose that time to give her a theological explanation for why her thinking is off. We would be wise to remember that. When you are with someone and their world has been shaken and things are falling apart from them, let me give you a, a concept to remember. Give a hug, not a lecture. When they say some things that may be incorrect, unbiblical, like that is not the time to lecture them about how unbiblical their thinking is. Give them a hug. Just say, I know. Correction at that time, you know what it sounds like to them? It sounds like what you are saying is, me and God are colleagues. We're above all the pain because our thinking is right. And you simpletons wouldn't feel so bad if you were as smart as we were. I'm not saying that's what you're communicating, but I am saying that's what they'll feel. I almost never do a funeral that I don't hear something unbiblical from somebody. Most common is something like now, you know, my brother, my dad, my whomever. Now, now he, that's my guardian angel looking down on me. He got his wings today. Do you know that's not true? Right? We don't turn into angels after we die. We don't. 
We're human beings. For all of eternity, we're going to be human beings. You are going to be you forever. An angel is a different like classification of being. You don't turn into an angel any more than you turn into an alligator after you die. But I've never stood up in a funeral and corrected someone for that. And you know what else? If you're there, if you give the hug, someone might be willing to listen when you give the correction. It's not that there's never a time to do the correction. You know what? I just did the correction. But someone might actually listen to the correction if you're with them when the pain is, is intense and is real and just sit with them. So I think that's what Elijah does mostly. And I think he, he does, though, express some confusion. If I were to paraphrase what I think is Elijah's heart in this, it is, God, I know you're not doing anything wrong, but can you help me figure out how this is right? I mean, are you bringing disaster here on this woman I'm staying with? Because it kind of feels like disaster. Like, he doesn't really level the accusation, but he at least asks the question. And you know what? That's okay. And then, Elijah does something really weird, really strange. He lays his body down on top of, of the body of this boy who's just passed away. If you are here, if you, if you are looking forward to me explaining away what he did or explaining why it's not weird, I got nothing for you. I don't know what to tell you. That's weird. And, and the big question, uh, the, 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 the flashing question over this is why does he lay down on top of this kid? Why does it happen three times? I will not be dogmatic about this. I do not know for sure, but I think I know. I think this is fairly normal and human. Dare I say, and again, I'm stepping away from what I can be sure about, so if you, you feel free to disagree with this here. Put your torch and pitchfork away when I say what I'm about to say. Dare I say a little bit of pagan thinking shows up from Elijah. You know what I think? I think Elijah wants to help God undo what God has done. I think he wants to try to jumpstart this boy. I think he hopes some of his life force would pass from him into this boy. And that is not Christian. It's not part of the Judeo-Christian way of thinking. And, and, if, and if we're going to picture how this, he it says it's, it's done three times and he begs, oh God, please let this boy's breath return to him. I think he prays to God, but he does what he can do. What he thinks, I don't know, might work. They didn't have CPR yet. But I don't think we should picture this as happening quickly, like he was doing burpees on this kid or something like that. Up-downs. I think if I was going to re try to recreate this, if I close my eyes and picture this in my mind's eye, it just, this isn't a well-thought-out plan. He, it just happens. He's desperate. 
He's like, God, I'm trying to convince people that you're the one true God, and this doesn't seem like a great plan, and he doesn't want this to be happening. And he lays down on this kid for whatever that's worth. Go, oh, Yahweh, my God, please let this kid's life come back to him. And he stands up and he looks, and you know what happens? Nothing. And he paces around the upper room, and he wrings his hand. Maybe he prays some more. Maybe he weeps, and he doesn't know what else. He does it again. And he gets up, nothing. And he paces and he rings and he weeps and he lays down again. And when he gets up the third time, I don't think we should picture Elijah standing up expectantly, hopefully. I don't think he thought the third time was the charm. That wasn't even a saying yet. I think he gets up hopelessly answer this question. Why did he have to do it three times? You know the answer to that question? He didn't. What Elijah did had nothing to do with what God did. In fact, here's my best guess. You know why why this happened three times before that boy came back to life? Because I think God was waiting till Elijah was done doing what Elijah thought might work. I think God waited until Elijah drug himself off that boy, completely hopeless, and God was in heaven like, are you done? And as Elijah crawls off that young man, hopelessly, we see God's response. Yahweh, the Lord answered Elijah's prayer. The boy's breath returned to him, and he lived. He stands up hopelessly. How, what, what am I going to say to this lady? And then out of the corner of his eye, something catches his sight. You see an eyelid flutter? A leg move? Maybe he hears, <gasps> and that boy is alive. But notice what we're told here. The Lord answered Elijah's prayer. If if he did anything effective, he asked the God who can do anything. It doesn't say the Lord honored Elijah's technique. What Elijah did had nothing to do with what happened. It's not like God was in heaven going, you know, I had decided that boy was going to die, but he did the three-time up-down thing. What am I supposed to do? I got to honor that one. He did the triple Lindy, if anybody remembers that movie. No. He He decided to answer Elijah's prayer. And the end of this story is where we see the, the widow's response to God's response. Elijah takes the boy downstairs. Remember, the last thing Elijah said to this boy's mom was, give me your son. The next thing he says is, see, your son is alive. Now, I assume that we don't read the actual immediate responses to that. What we read in verse 24 is is later after mom has composed herself. We don't read of the tears and the screams and the hugs. 
what we read is more puzzling than that. After she collects herself and her thoughts, she looks at Elijah and says, Now I know that you're a prophet. Now I know that the Lord really does speak through you. You know what's puzzling about that? Did you, have you read the first half of this chapter? Because I would want to ask, if I were Elijah, I would want to ask this widow, what do you mean now you know that I'm a prophet and what God says through me actually happens? Haven't you had evidence of that day after day after day after day? Every time you go to the cupboard, there's flour and oil in there. Who told you that was going to happen? Me. <laughs> Before that, God told you a prophet was going to come meet you, and I showed up. What do you mean now you know that like God's real and his word's real and it comes through me? This is, again, this is a very human response. She knew before. Now she knows again. Listen, never underestimate the human ability to forget who God is, what he says, and that what he says will happen is going to happen. Never forget the human ability to forget what matters most, what's most important. It's like we all know, but boy, do we need reminded. Never forget the human ability to forget those things, especially when God has chosen to provide in ways we would like to be provided for. Because you know what happens during those seasons? It gets normal. It gets regular. I mean, this widow... She goes to her cupboard and every day, flour and oil. And every day, flour and oil. But it was every day that there was flour and oil and even that just gets normal. And she knew, but then all of a sudden the earth shakes and she knows again, oh yeah. Because what... What she's learned in this whole chapter is her greatest need was for the God who provides flour and oil and for the God who's in control of life after death. And this, this is all of us. Like we are this guy. Let's say there's a time in your life, and this is probably true for some of us, there's a time in your life where you really needed a different job or your first job or a job. You really needed something that would provide better financially or something that would be better hours-wise or benefits or you name it. And you, but you really, you and your family, you really needed it. And then it happened. And you got the job and you were elated and you were so happy and you praised God and it was better. And fast forward 18 months and guess what? That tremendous blessing was all of a sudden normal, regular. 
something to complain about rather than be thankful for. Or how about this? Every time you or I go to our pantry, our cupboards, and our refrigerators, and we find more food than we could possibly eat. There's food in there that needs thrown away, and I've seen some of your refrigerators. It is time, kids. More than we could ever possibly eat. That is just as much God providing that for us as it was God providing the flour and the oil for this gal. But it gets so regular and normal and it becomes self-confidence and we think it's us and it's my self-discipline and my financial acumen and how hard I work and my work ethic and that's why I've got... And then sometimes God loves us enough to shake us, to wake us up. Something that hurts so bad, but it helps me remember, oh yeah, he is who I actually needed all this time. Sometimes we're ready for the lessons Sometimes God shakes our lives, and for those who love Him through faith in Jesus Christ, it is His grace that shakes us. It's not His meanness. It's not His wrath. His wrath is gone. His wrath was absorbed, but He loves you, and He knows what you need better than you know what you need. You need Him just as desperately now as you ever have. You need him just as much as that lady, that unnamed widow needed when she was going to starve to death with her son. You need him that badly. And sometimes he, he will shake your world to give you the opportunity to go, oh yeah, I got to run to daddy. That's who I need. And when that desperation drives us to him, whatever drives us to him, it is good if it drives us there. Now we got to wade through the feelings of how could you? Oh, that our how could you's quickly turn into those words of Peter. There's this time where the apostle Peter, when he's following Jesus around, and, and Jesus had taught some really difficult things, and people were leaving. People were leaving. They were done with Jesus. I, I'm off this train. And Jesus asked the disciples, What about you? You guys leaving too? And Peter just says, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Sometimes God shakes us, shakes our whole world and so we, to remind us, oh yeah, that's the only place I ultimately have to go. I am helpless down here. I, I am helpless. I, have, I cannot do anything apart from him. And he is my ultimate need. When David wrote Psalm 30, he sneaks this one little verse in there. He says, now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Man, that's us. When things are going well, when God is providing, look at what I've done. 
But what about when he What about when he doesn't provide the way I would like? If we'll run to him, one day we'll know how good that event was. Second thing this passage teaches us, very obviously, that our God is the God of life after death. In some very real sense, in an ultimate sense, It doesn't matter how well or how much what God does for us as far as our possessions, our wealth, our health, like relationships. It's not that those things don't matter. They do, but in an ultimate bigger sense, they don't matter. (laughs) Because one day very soon, you and I, we're going to die. And that's when our actual, our real life is going to begin. And the one that begins the day after we die is longer than this life by infinity years. And what will ultimately matter, how long, how healthy, how prosperous the days of this earthly life were will not matter even close to did I know the God who is God of life after death? Our God is, he's so many things. He is the God of prosperity. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the God of fertility and the womb and all of our struggles with those things. He is the God of, you name it. He's the only God there is, and He's the God of all of it. But all those things pale into comparison to whether or not He is the God of your life after your death. If He had a best friend, if the Lord Jesus had a best friend on earth, it was John. The disciple named John, whom Jesus loved, knew Jesus better than any of them or as well as any of them. And he's the only one that God ordained to let live to a ripe old age. And when he was an old man, he had this intense vision that he recorded in the book of Revelation. At the very beginning of that vision, he says, all of a sudden, I was like, I was in what we call heaven. And there was my old friend, Jesus, my buddy. But here's what he said. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. He was terrifying to me. But he reached out and placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who lives. I was dead, but look, now I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus Christ holds the keys that let us out of eternal death and let us into eternal life. This widow in the story, I don't blame her for being shook for her human responses to the death of her son. What a terrible, awful, heart-wrenching thing. But ultimately, the biggest concern is, what was the relationship with my son to the God who is God of life after death? And that's your biggest concern too. Where are you at with the Lord Jesus? 
You know, in this story, we see, we see a picture of Jesus in this story. Did you see it? In the story, the go-between, the intercessor between God and the woman and her son is Elijah, the prophet. Now we have a greater prophet, the Lord Jesus. In the story, give me your son became your son is now alive. With Jesus, he says to you, give me your life. Give me yourself. And if we do that, the minute after we die, it will turn into, look, you're alive. Forever and ever. And then finally, this passage teaches us to pray for the dead and lay your life down for them. Now, again, torches and pitchforks down. I will not teach you to pray for people who have already died. It is, it is too late. And because that is true, that makes the actual point here all the more important. The Apostle Paul told us that everyone who has not come to faith in God through Jesus Christ and his cross, everyone who has not come to a saving relationship with Jesus is dead, separated from God right now. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. We should be praying for those folks. And we should lay our lives down for them. Now again, Please do not go lay your body on top of someone like Elijah did. That's weird, and we're not doing that. But we should be there, involved, with them. Spend less time disgusted by the idea that, they, that these non-Christian folks don't live like good Christians, and more time disgusted by the concept that they're separated from God, and it's going to be forever if they don't come and know Him. Are we involved in the lives of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins? And are we willing to invest? Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that you gave the keys to life and the grave and death and the grave to the Lord Jesus after he defeated death at the cross we know our sins are going to be punished either at the cross or in hell forever. And so first, if there are some here this morning who have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would do what only you can do. Pursue their heart. Bring them to yourself through the person of Jesus Christ that they would merely simply cry out to you, I I'm not okay with you. I, I believe that Jesus died for me. Here is my life. I, after I die, I want, to hear, I want to hear you say, see, you are alive again. Father, help us to not shake our fists too long when you shake the world around us that we might see your grace drawing us to yourself. And then, God, may you send us out into a dark world with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because there are dead folks who need the life that only Jesus brings. We love you. Have your way in us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? We'll finish our time this morning.